This is Rabbi Neat Leah Sarna and Rabbi David Wolkenfeld. Shalom and welcome to the Straw Hat. We are the official podcast of Anche Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the beautiful Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. This week's episode, we have two segments and an interview. Um, segment number one is about the amazing scholar and residence we just had at our show, Rabbi Dr. Zev Elif, and some of the ideas he raised about denominational titles, particularly within Orthodoxy and particularly what is modern Orthodoxy. Um, Then we'll transition into a segment about the domestic based on a conference that I just went to. Um, And lastly, we have an interview with two Anshay Shalom alumni or members of the Anshay Shalom diaspora, um, Talia Arvut Winkler and John S. Christ Winkler, or I should say Dr. John S. Christ Winkler. So two weeks ago, we had a really fascinating scholar in residence, uh, Rabbi Dr. Zev Elif. who I know is a long time uh, Ben Bayit uh, in your home yes. uh, and a really treasured local colleague here in, in the Chicago area. He came to our shul and gave a series of really, I think, stimulating lectures, uh, uh, really, really compelling topics. I guess, uh, you know, other things he spoke about, you know, he uh, Shabbat early afternoon, right after Kiddush, he spoke about the history of the bat mitzvah uh, within the American Orthodox community. And the really fascinating dynamic that he showed was that in the 60s and 70s, uh, bat mitzvah celebrations were a really controversial topic uh, of internal Orthodox polemic in New York City, but they had existed for uh, like two generations since the 1940s in Midwestern Orthodox congregations here in Chicago and elsewhere. That's a really, really interesting dynamic that things can be happening out here in the hinterland that people are not aware of in, <laughs> in New York. And then, you know, je- decades later, all of a sudden, oh, you know, let, let's, let's debate this and talk about this. Uh, you know, so, uh, and, and so I, you know, I was aware of that, that history, you know, I think from the reading I had done, you know, prior, but uh, what, what's so great about um, the, the presentation is what he brought together, some really great primary documents uh, mm-hmm. from various archives to sort of show that history as it unfolds. Uh, one neat uh, thing I thought was kind of cool, that he, he found the Shul Bulletin in which uh, Alana Kagan's, uh, Chief Justice Alana, uh, Justice <laughs> Alana Kagan's uh, um, bat mitzvah was announced at the Lincoln Square Synagogue Bulletin. She was the first bat mitzvah at Lincoln Square Synagogue, and uh, which... I think Rabbi Riskin has written about uh, with great pride and, yeah. <laughs> since he's become uh, a Supreme Court justice. But that's a neat thing to like to track down and find uh, this really very understated way in which uh, her parents were wished a Mazel Tov on the occasion of her yeah. of her bat mitzvah. <laughs> uh, I also w- found like some really really stimulating his uh, his remarks on Friday night after dinner. He spoke about the history of the term modern orthodoxy. That's sort of a I guess one of his areas of expertise as a scholar um, and. He showed how amongst the modern Orthodox intelligentsia, the intellectual thought leaders of uh, thought leaders of modern Orthodoxy, there was a real a fraught relationship with the term itself, and uh, it was rejected very strenuously at one point by I think it's most of these people, and then they came to uh, reconsider and accept it, and then maybe reject it again. Rabbi Lamb, I think, went back and forth over a period of like forty years mm-hmm. in terms of his thoughts about the term modern orthodoxy itself, and so that was sort of again, an interesting again to see the documents of how this the term you know really fraught meaning and and those who use it had a fraught relationship to it. So that um, it's kind of amazing because I think nowadays we would call someone a flip flop, like you put it in writing twenty <laughs> years ago, you must still stand by it, as opposed to when we look at historical figures, we're like, wow, it's so interesting their development. And I, I think it like, gives you confidence to write a little bit, that you're oh, like, yeah. you know, history right, will I judge you right, kindly yes. <laughs> for <laughs> developing in your thinking over right, the right. time. Right, right. You're allowed to change your mind, even in yeah. writing, uh, <laughs> uh, even if you're a prominent uh, figure. That, that That's that's true, and, and it's great, great people have done so. Um, 
my, my sort of one takeaway for me, like after hearing him speak about this history of the term unorthodox, is sort of the like the missing piece or the next step of this kind of research would be to chart how the term is used, not by uh, thought leaders and intellectuals and rabbis, but how mm-hmm. it's used by like Amcha, by like the you know the the the, the users, the users, <laughs> right, the practitioners, um, and particularly like you know perhaps the least. Um, Famous and, and prominent among them, and because I, I think modern orthodoxy is in fact a term that has really very different uh, uses and meanings from different people. Right? So I think all of these people who are debating the term as in the. By the way, the, I think orthodoxy also means different things to people who use it. Oh, that's a, do you want to? Meaning, I think I think some people, you know, like just the the fight over like that's an orthodox show, that's not an orthodox mm-hmm. show, that's this, or like I'm orthodox, you're not orthodox, mm-hmm. I'm orthodox, like. Uh, and, and, and I have a lot of deep skepticism about that whole conversation and like what the purpose of it is, because I think these terms are just so kind of fluid and flexible. And by the way, there's no mitzvah in the Torah to be orthodox. There's a mitzvah in the Torah to do mitzvot and learn Torah and things like that. Um, but like being like the obsession with this language of orthodoxy, modern orthodox, centrist mm-hmm. orthodox, ultra orthodox, left leaning orthodox, yeah, yeah. open orthodox, like all of these words it's sort of like i think we just like we spend too much time on it like spend more time improving yourself as a human and as a servant of god and as an observer of the torah and like who cares fair point i think that's a different i guess you would you would you see that what i'm i guess what i'm trying to get at is is the is the same word being used in very different ways by different strata of our community right um which is a little bit different from this. Most is it? A, I'm asking like a more. Yeah, like, yeah saying who cares anyway about terms. So that's like yeah. granted that we're gonna like talk about terms and people are gonna use labels to dent- to help uh, give clarity to their lives and and explain themselves to others. Um, I think the, modern orthodoxy in particular is a term that is used in very different ways, maybe even opposite ways, but by, mm-hmm. by different people. I think the um, thought leaders use modern orthodoxy. Let's say some sort of. Um, grand synthesis between Torah and general studies or an embrace of traditional observance of Torah and mitzvot and also an embrace of uh, broad general education and, you know, commitment Mm -hmm. to being a good neighbor and good citizen, something along those lines, in which Mm -hmm. case modern orthodoxy is really quite an, you know, an elite uh, movement. It's Mm -hmm. it's more demanding than other forms of orthodoxy because there are twice as many things that you have to care about and and really devote yourself to in a really significant way. And Uh, the interest, like, I I mean, in some ways I grew up in the cradle of modern orthodoxy, right? Like at the the Maimonides School, which is uh, founded by Rav Soloveitchik and very much to this day kind of like guided by, I remember when I was a a student at Maimonides, I wanted there to be a women's Megillah reading and they said the Rav was opposed. Um, (laughs) And like, that was the answer. I was like, but Rashi and this, like I brought like all this learning. I sat with my community rabbi who did allow for women, uh, women's Megillah readings. And he gave me like this huge source sheet printed, like the way they used to print source sheets on these like massive pieces of paper. And I brought it to the Rosh Hashim of the school and he was like, the Rav was opposed. Uh-huh, uh-huh, <laughs> Anyways, yeah. whatever. So very much like on the, yeah, yeah. and as these schools went, it was also, it, it was organized. Interestingly, like many day schools have Liberty Kodesh in the morning and um, like kind of regular high school studies in the afternoon or something like that. My mom and these, they were interspersed on purpose because they should all talk to each other. So you would go from Gemara Shir to Calculus to um, American history, and that would be a normal day yeah. in the life. And um, the idea was that the ideas should all flow. Something you're learning about in Gemara Shir should, should influence the way you approach yeah, your yeah, Calculus yeah, class yeah, yeah, and yeah. vice versa. That's definitely right. So it's definitely, that's not a, that's not right. So, um, so that's a very uh, elite kind of advanced form mm-hmm. of uh, religiosity. Uh, you know, I, I think 
with this kind of, you know, modern Orthodox Jews should watch the least amount of television of any type of Orthodox <laughs> Jews because we have, yeah, twice as many. Not only do you have to study Torah with diligence, you also, you know, should be, be reading Shell and Shakespeare, right? You yeah, know, so, exactly. and Milton, right? So, so how do you, right? So, how, what time is there for, 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 um, for, for time? And, 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 and sorry, just to yeah, round out please, what I was saying yeah. before, like, one of the things that was always a conversation is, like, what does it mean that we're modern Orthodox? You could say it's the, well, we go from Gemara to calculus class, but people, the other people would be like, we're modern Orthodox, so we don't have to, like, cover our knees or whatever and people would always be like that's not what it is right, like, exactly that's so not so the point. exactly so yeah. in in contrast the like i think amongst like the actual practitioners, people who call themselves who self identify often they, they use it they, they use it to mean a kind of like what in Israel they, they call dati light, a kind yeah. of uh, a more casual relationship to mitzvah. Like I'm modern Orthodox, we do do X. And we're modern we Orthodox. Dare out. Yeah, for we, example, yeah. right. You know, you know, so so and that that's a very, very different use of the term where, you know, it really stands you know, and there's maybe some like there's nothing modern about showing your knees, right? I mean, like, like, like people have been showing their knees for, for thousands of years, right? That's, that's not modernity that, that, uh, that leads to that. That's, it's mm-hmm. something else, right? It, it's, um, uh, so that's sort of interesting. I, some, that's what I'm kind of curious about. How do uh, people who, um, like, self-identify, like, embrace a label or use a label to, like, ascribe to themselves a label which signifies, like, a casual relationship to mitzvah? I think that's... Um, I think it's. I think it's not a great um, way to be. I think it's. That's not. I wonder. I worry about the sustainability of, like, embracing and sort of self-identifying as being kind of casual. I feel like it's different from having like a lenient approach. Right? You can say like, you know, like based on oh, you know my study and based on my values, like I've ad- I'm adopting a lenient stance on I don't know like restrictions of koisha, right? Based on right, mm-hmm. like that's and that can be informed by certain values, such as, you know, a, a feminism, of empowering women. It can be informed by scholarship and seeing how the term is used in the Talmud and how it's used in the Rishonim. Um, and, and then you can come to a conclusion that, that can look, you know, uh, different from how other some other communities are, are practicing these restrictions. But that seems like a very, very different way of being in the world and sort of relating to Torah, relating to mitzvah, relating to one's own self and one's own like relationship with God as opposed to like, oh, well, we're modern Orthodox. We don't care about that. You know, we're just, you know, mm-hmm. we're modern Orthodox so we mm-hmm. can just be casual about these things, you know, which I think, I think that's... Uh, right, and you know. it could be the very same practice, right? Like you could say, oh, we're modern Orthodox so we listen to women sing. I, I, Kolisha, I think, is a great example. Could could be just like, we live in the modern world and we're lenient about some things and so we're lenient about this. Or you could say, I have learned the Sridei Eish on this, and I have read Rav Bigman's Tshuva, and I have all you know all of the like hal- like halachic literature produced basically since the let's say since the Holocaust about this subject that that provides us with leniencies um, on in terms of women um, singing, or also um, Rav Avadia has written uh, very compellingly about Kolisha as well, um, particularly like in the synagogue context. And based on my learning, I'm ready to take a more lenient an approach, that's a completely different way of getting to maybe the same place. Yeah, and, and the expectation is not that like everyone's going to do that learning themselves, but that they're part of a community whose leadership, whose religious leadership, whose intellectual leadership, whose halakhic leadership has done that learning and has thought about this and then and that filters down to a community saying, yeah, we're, we're, we're quite meticulous in our observance and, and, and we, we're, we're adopted. And in and my this meticulous issue, observance, uh, yes. I listen to women saying in such and such environments. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think, that's, yeah, so I, th- I think that's, um, um, that, that'd be interesting to, to see to see sort of play out like the, the scholarship of how the term is used and then to then to think how how we want to respond and how we want to encourage people to think about their own uh, religious lives I, I was I was at a um, a study day um, recently a, con- a small conference for 
mostly for congregational rabbis, uh, Orthodox congregational rabbis, uh, devoted to you know some of the challenges, current work being done to free Agunot and, and respond to sort of very like you know old modern modern old mm-hmm. this modern iteration of an old problem mm-hmm. and, and something that that that. I had not quite realized was really brought home to me was that this is a um, this is a problem where the modern Orthodox community is really like leading the way and providing services that like is mostly going to benefit people outside of our modern Orthodox community, right? It's it's our community for mm-hmm. int- various reasons. You know, maybe it's the use of the prenup. Maybe it's a certain set of um, values that have infused our community and and sort of is. Uh, you know, in terms of what types of behavior we tolerate and don't, whatever it may be, for whatever reason, our community seems not to be producing uh, agunot. You know, uh, at, at anywhere close to the rate that was happening even ten years ago. Uh, and- I saw this morning, by the way, someone posted on Facebook the latest issue of Mishpacha magazine is about the prenup. Fascinating. Isn't that fascinating? Wow. I want to like get a copy now. I don't even know how I would go about doing that. But I'll tell you, as somebody in the, I know who gets the, Oh, sorry. okay, great. If you get Mishpacha <laughs> Magazine, I want to see it. <laughs> I, I think there is a listener, uh, actually. Great, <laughs> I, know, so... I know a listener to the podcast who gets Mishpacha. It was access to it regularly. So, uh, uh, <laughs> Fabulous. Come find me. <laughs> uh, so so that, that's interesting. So, like, I think we're often, I don't know, I'm often like aware of the ways in which the non-modern Orthodox Orthodox community is providing us with um, a lot of our kashrut mashkichim and a lot of yeah. our or just you know, like the exi- like meaning it Boston versus Chicago for example Boston has way fewer kosher restaurants because the, uh, the Haredi population and meaning I think the modern Orthodox population in, in in Boston might actually be bigger just judging by like day school enrollment numbers or uh, whatever right yeah but possibly I don't even know but the Haredi population in Chicago is much bigger and allows then for really wonderful kosher restaurants that we do not have in the state interesting. of Massachusetts interesting interesting yeah yeah, yeah. that's also so that's supposed to be numbers here. I'm thinking, like, like what services do we outsource to them? Right? They right. provide like most shrita. of our, most almost all shrita in, in anywhere in the world. Most, uh, not all, but most safrut. Not not right. You know, a lot, yeah. a lot of these sort of religious functionaries and sort of the like. Um, Whatever religious power professionals, whatever you want to call it, right? This mm-hmm. kind of like a, require advanced training um, and uh, dedication to this religious craft. Uh, most of that, I think, is coming from the Haredi community right now. And I mean, here's an example. Here's a counterexample. Here, in terms of Aguna activism, in terms of coming up with solutions, in terms of uh, Bate mm-hmm. Din that are responding in a more proactive way, I think that's coming from our community. But we're serving largely a clientele that's a little bit, uh, you know, one step removed, you know, or, two, or more than one step removed uh, from our community. So that's sort of, I don't know, it's an interesting way in which, again, we should not think of ourselves as, like, Orthodox light. We should think of ourselves as, like, an elite of Orthodoxy because we're embracing the same Torah and Mitzvah, but we're also committed to, um, like, being good citizens and good neighbors and also committed yeah. to synthesizing the best that's being produced and thought and developed by um other human beings who aren't Jewish and et cetera, et cetera. Totally. Et cetera yeah. I had the opportunity recently to, to look at um, the Rambam's Hilchot Sanhedrin. Someone asked me a question um, and it brought me there, whatever. Okay. Um, and um, one of the things he says is like, who's eligible to oh, yeah. sit on the Sanhedrin? The people should be both extraordinarily learned, but also they should probably be like doctors or <laughs> um, or astronomers or scientists or philosophers. Like they need to be experts also in something else, says the Rambam, who of course himself <laughs> was an expert in probably just about everything available to him at his time. Right. Being yeah. A yeah. He didn't have to. He didn't have to go to medical school. Though. I just want to put that out. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's true. It was easier. Right. Uh, 
Um, and uh, but but still, right? Like he felt that. So in in, in the Rambam's eyes, who should be sitting on the yeah. Sanhedrin someday? Modern Orthodox rabbis, indeed. <laughs> cool. <laughs> which which is, uh, by the way, it might account for why so many modern Orthodox day schools are called Maimonides. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's another really interesting. Like I, I'm sure this has been you know the history of. Uh, I think this has been done. I think I actually, have. I don't think I've even read the article, but like the, the Maimonides as a sort of model, that's like a heroic figure for mm-hmm. for modern Jews is a really interesting. Uh, and then story. you read his writing about how women can only go out of the house a few times a month and should wear a hijab and how you can beat them, and then you're sort of like, hmm, people are still complicated. Yes, of course. <laughs> We were just talking about a conference that Rabbi Wolkenfeld was at. I, too, just had an, an amazing learning opportunity of a quite different variety. Um, the Katz Center for Advanced Jewish Studies in Philadelphia brings in um, a group of 10 kind of synagogue clergy every year to learn from the scholars who they've gathered there. And every year they gather scholars to work um, on a particular subject in Jewish studies. So this year they're talking about the Jewish home and the domestic. Um, and I had the opportunity, I'll go three times over the course of the year to go learn with a variety of different scholars. So just to be clarified, when you say scholar, you mean like academics, academics professors academics. or grad students, postdocs? Um, not grad students, professors, basically. Um, and I th- maybe a postdoc or two. I don't know. The people we all learned from were were um, faculty in various places. One was uh, faculty at Berkeley. Another was faculty at uh, Stony Brook. There's some letters before that. SUNY Stony Brook. Yeah, SUNY Stony Brook. Um, And another was at the University of Virginia. We were assigned reading in advance because it has to feel like a real (laughs) seminar. Um, So we read um, a book by Professor Vanessa Oaks um, called Inventing Jewish Ritual, um, which uh, honestly... um, as like an Orthodox person reading the book, I, I, I struggled with it a little bit. Um, we, invent, we invent rituals too, right? But but I felt like she actually didn't give enough like credence to Orthodox people who invent rituals, which which made me like go down this whole rabbit hole of like I think Orthodox Jews in some ways invent like the best rituals. Like what? What's, what's it? Um, like just because they're so informed and educated, and then just trying to like bring specific meaning into their home. Someone sitting around the table, a um, actually uh, yeah, a, a reform rabbi sitting around the table said, "Isn't parenting just the activity of inventing rituals?" Which I thought <laughs> was like a great insight actually, and that I think Orthodox parents. A, Invent like Orthodox parenting right. rituals, like, like the Shabbos party, right? The Shabbos party, or like the Havdalah dance, right, or whatever right, it is, right? It's right? like taking these, like, or like, I mean, we do it at our show, right? Like at Havdalah, we have like a set list of songs that we sing, and we every week give out glow you sticks, know, glow sticks yeah. and and right, like nowhere in halacha does it say like give out glow sticks at, but like these like para halachic kind of rituals. I mean, we were just talking in the last um in the last segment about the development of bat mitzvah, which again is like taking this like very deeply kind of Torah idea that people go from a state of not being obligated in mitzvot to a state of being obligated in mitzvot and that this is a moment that should be marked obviously bar mitzvah is not in the Torah either but has like developed mm-hmm. um, as um, as a Jewish ritual and that the same thing should be developed for women and so we invent these like deeply learned rituals that are steeped in kind of Torah and, and Jewish history and, and, and knowledge um, and, and I felt like the book doesn't give enough credit to that because I feel like like I see it every day and every every like Orthodox community home I go into has their own kind of like, how do you like, what does your Shabbos table look like? What happens at it? Um, but that also like 
one of the themes we talked about a lot was um, the relation because almost everyone around the table is a synagogue professional except for obviously the professor who was giving the talk. Um, we talked about like when you're talking about the domestic, um, what's actually the relationship between the domestic and the synagogue, mm-hmm. which is really interesting, especially nowadays because so much like Jewish communal money is going towards these like home based like we have in our own community like Base Hillel mm-hmm. um, with Rami Rami Megan and Paige um, and and there's a lot of like energy towards these like home based things and then what does that say about the synagogue um, and and some the some of the non-orthodox rabbis felt like very anxious about it in the, in the sense of like if we empower other people to lead their own rituals then what are they going to come to us for that's wild isn't that intense yeah. but I think we feel the opposite we're like do more rituals at yeah. home yeah, <laughs> like yeah. I, I feel like learn and earn is about doing more rituals at home and in yeah, your private yeah. life um, I send home every week in the family email Parsha themes for the specific purpose of discussion around your home Shabbos table yeah, um, yeah. And, and and we kind of feel like the more we can and or like our community kashrut standards is another great example of that like obviously our synagogue is kosher but like that's not enough like we want the members of our community to have kosher homes as well so that um, they can you know the the domestic lives of our membership can flow one into the other seamlessly I would say whenever I have the opportunity to have like professional conversations with um like with non-orthodox rabbis, uh, people who serve non-orthodox congregation, I always um, like I'm re- really impressed by the professionalism and their commitment and their mm. devotion to their communities. Uh, and I'm also so grateful that I work at an orthodox <laughs> show and they don't have to like the challenges they face seem so. Uh, re- yeah, thank God, remote from you know, like obviously a lot. There's a lot of similarity, and people are people, and mm-hmm. you know, 100%. and and people are born and they die and they get married and they yeah. you know, et cetera. You know that that that's all that's all there, but. Um, uh, they have the, the unique challenges they face, and thank God the unique like opportunities we have uh, in in the mm-hmm. Orthodox community is really uh, it's, it's quite different. But I just want to like just take a step back, like this um, this fellowship bringing together uh, bringing together like practitioners with the scholars, scholars who are like sort of studying Judaism. I think it's a really interesting model. Uh, I would imagine it'd be really fruitful and and just like a great opportunity for. People working in synagogues who pro- whose daily routine probably has a lot of, even though you're doing holy work and sacred work, there's a lot of mm-hmm. like um, drudgery of like responding to 150 emails a day and, mm-hmm. and just, you know, a lot of logistics of like, you know, the nitty gritty and making sure that, you know, that there are babysitters uh, for each Shabbat and that the, you mm-hmm. know, all the other groups are, Shabbat groups are staffed and, you know, et cetera. It's whatever it may be in, in each of our, you know, sort of, uh, you know, to-do lists each week. And then yeah. to get away and just think about ideas again uh, must be really great. Oh, it was absolutely wonderful. But but more than that, meaning I do feel like um, there's a good amount. And I think this is in some ways I credit this to, to you and the like culture that you the of the staff that you've built here. Like, I do feel like I spend time every week learning Torah, whether it's daily dafyomi study. Um, I also, like, Skype into a shiur every week, and I learn with a chavrusa who doesn't live here every week. Um, and so, like, I do feel like I, I, I continue growing my own, but it's all very much, like, classic Torah sources. Like, it's a page of the Bavli, or mm-hmm. it's um, Iyun in Masachet um, Ketubot, or it's continuing my, like, to grow my halachic knowledge through Echavrusa and Ebenezer. Like, no, it's not like, what did um, home rituals look like? Or where was <laughs> where was scholarship happening, and was it happening in the home in the 17th century in Prague? Right? Like, that's not something that no. I would be like, <laughs> wow. But, 
And yeah, um, and like that was really interesting to learn about, like just to learn about Prague in that time period, what people's lives look like, what their domestic lives look wow. like. We have descriptions of homes where like you would have 12 or 13 people, multi-generational families living in one Jewish home together in basically one room. Like yeah. Prague was extremely high density. And, and there's even a description of like these like lofted beds that you couldn't like stand up in. You would just like climb up into and like roll wow. away. So, like, first of all, like, privacy, not a thing. Yeah. Like, and, and even things that we, like, when I teach colors, I teach a lot about, like, how your sex life needs to be private. Um, and, and, like, the Gemara talks about it. Um, and, like, it should be in the dark and blah, blah, blah. Like, all this stuff, right? And then, and then you're like, well, like, clearly they were procreating and they were all sleeping in one room together. Like, what? <laughs> That's, like, a completely different, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. planet. Um, and these people were, like, were, like, learned, but, like, where was that happening? And, like, just, like, just like amazing things we also learned about um you know the person from berkeley the professor from berkeley who spoke as an archaeologist and she she works at at tel megiddo um in tel megiddo they have it goes very early so they have some like pre-israelite a lot of pre-israelite stuff including um tombs that were like in homes like in family homes under where these canaanites live tomb that's called tomb 100 had like the remains of the of like upwards of 100 people um then they just kept like shoving people in and so it also helps you think about all the responses that the torah has in terms of like the the corpse security like you can't imagine a world in which a jew would bury under the room that they live in right uh, because also tumor rises yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) so it's just like so like you learn something that's like seemingly like canaanite ritual whatever and then you're like oh my gosh now i like understand the torah so much better um and the person and then also like it's a great minor orthodox synthesis right (laughs) i know and then also like there's a person called a pakidu in each family whose job it was to maintain the kispu which so they're they're memorable for their hebrew cognates pakidu is like pakid um kispu is kishuf with a calf. Um, the Keshav meaning like magic, like necromancy, and the, the Pakidu, the Pakid, the like one in charge would be like kind of the patriarch, the living patriarch of the family. You had all these jobs vis a vis the dead in terms of like feeding them and whatever. But what that plus the Prague talk had me thinking about... Sorry, you're, you're correct. It's a cough. It's fine. It's totally <laughs> fine. <laughs> and um, what I had me thinking about was actually like multi-generational families um, and how like in Prague you'd have like these multi-generational families all living together and in ancient Canaan you would have these multi-generational families including dead ones all wow, living yeah, together. That's very multi-generational. Very multi-generational but like we still do like people like I want to be buried with in my family yeah, plot. Yeah, of course. Like it's not in your home anymore but it's still very much like the multi-generational like the family lives on together. Yeah. Um, does, and then we and, or whatever you know like the family uh, remains know, together. Remains together stays yeah. right doesn't live on together the opposite of lives on together um yeah um but but it's kind of like this amazing thing of like we still value inter or to, to a certain extent intergenerational living in death but in life much less now and actually yeah. like what does that mean then and what that got me thinking about is something that i think about in terms of our show a lot which is that synagogues are our intergenerational spaces oh yeah that it's not it's not the the Moisha House stuff that 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 specifically yeah. is geared towards twenty and 
30 year olds and it's not these schools which are geared towards children um, and it's not old age homes either it's it's the synagogue where actually all those people come together and then um, what is it about like multi-generational species that that we no longer keep inside of our domestic that is like really important to I think maintain. it's a big big challenge I see I think we, we've, we speak about this frequently actually in, yeah. in uh, many many contexts it's a real challenge because we're not we don't most of us live in multi-generational um, homes our nuclear families are you know mm-hmm. two generations uh, and, uh, and that's pretty you know like I don't Maybe you learned like when, when did you start living in nuclear families? I don't know, but okay. Mm-hmm. But we, we we mostly do here here in yeah. our community, and yet then the shul is really countercultural to like really every other part of our lives where we're whether it's work or at home where we don't have that many generations uh, all kind of doing the same thing under the same roof at the same time. And I, what it mean, makes me think of like I never like it's not like oh wow the show is like the only intergenerational space in our lives like that's not a new thought for me but the new thought for me is that once upon a time that was just like a natural order of being and people didn't need to be taught how to engage in those spaces productively whereas I think now actually like one of the things that, that we think about a lot is like how do we get people to even like sit down together or meet people who aren't in there like natural like we have children the same age or we're both 25 and single or whatever um and it's on us to like learn how to do that it's yeah. not just like oh it's intuitive how to engage with people who are different life stages from and, us. and to see that as as like a feature not a bug of being 100%. part of a show right it's like oh my goodness all these old people oh my goodness all these young people and they're different interests and they're you know and, and they're, they're crazy children yeah and right no like that's actually like that's the point the point of a shul is that it has you know like decades of of life you know experience you know all under one roof all at the same time you know advocating for one another um getting one another yeah 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 all of that um but then someone made a really interesting point when i was talking about that which was does like the dislocation from your parents actually lead to more generative jewish creativity meaning let's say just like as a silly example that it made me think of when he said that my parents don't sing isha chayel and Ethan and I sing Asia Chayel. My brother and my sister-in-law sing Asia Chayel and other stuff. Um, and, and all like, before dinner, wow. All before dinner, yeah. And um, and if we were all still living with my parents, like, you... would we do that? Definitely not, right? Right, of course. Um, so, so it's kind of interesting in terms of, like, this dislocation. Like, it's not all bad of, of these, like, um, intergenerational dislocation. Like, it leads to, like, generative Jewish creativity. I, I think... Married couples having their own bedrooms is a good thing, too. Also, totally, yes. <laughs> Running water, um, <laughs> bathrooms, all great things. Yeah, 100%. Um, and, like, it's it's worth, um, it's worth like, thinking about the losses Absolutely. involved. Absolutely. Also, but, but really, like, in both directions. Like, I'd really be thinking about it, like, especially because, like, um, my grandmother lived with us when we were in high school. So, like, I come from this, like, intergenerational home and really believe in it. And yet, it's sort of like, right, but my parents were living without my father's mother, for many years and kind of had the, made their yeah. own, you know, like singing in the of you before Havdalah. Like that mm-hmm. was not, you know, that wasn't something that my grandparents did. Right. Um, and came up with their own kind of home rituals before she moved back in into what was very much their home. Yeah. yeah. Um, so just kind of like all this. Anyways, it's such a well, I'm so grateful that the shawl gives me opportunities to engage in these professional development um, things that exist in the world, which, by the way, it's amazing that they even exist. Yeah. And that then we have the opportunity to go and participate in them because it's just kind of like sets your mind off in all of these different directions that hopefully ultimately end up in some way generative for the show that uh, clearly clearly it has been and will be so yeah. I'm excited to over the coming months as these ideas percolate and as you know it stimulates your own scholarship and and and, uh, and ideas I'm looking forward to hearing what comes next yeah thank you we are here in Slunsky Studios with two 
illustrious Anshe Shalom alumni, or maybe I should say proud members of the Anshe Shalom diaspora, <laughs> uh, Tali Arvid Wingler and John Eskreis Wingler. Uh, welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. So where are you coming in from today? We are currently in Chicago. Um, we're here for uh, John's dissertation defense. I should have introduced you as Dr. John yeah. S. Chrysler. Success, successful <laughs> dissertation defense. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we were just in Germany for three months, and now we're currently based in New York slash New Jersey. Awesome. Well, welcome back to Anshi Shalom in Chicago. Thank you. Thanks. We arranged relatively decent weather for you also, which is really... Better yeah. than New Jersey. We came from snow. Uh, to tell you the truth, we miss using our good Chicago winter gear. Oh. We just, the East Coast really doesn't do it for us. <laughs> um, and we, loved, we, we miss having you guys here, obviously, but we also miss having you guys in Germany because our German listenership to the podcast has gone, <laughs> has plummeted. We have been loyal listeners since the beginning. <laughs> One of the neat things about the, the software that we use to broadcast the podcast, it tells us where... Uh, by state or country where each download of the podcast occurs. So it's always fun to see the different states where people are listening or have listened and the different countries. So we used to have a regular, reliable uh, two downloads every episode from Germany, and, and that seems to have petered off. So, but sorry. if you're the guy who listens in Spain, can you get in touch with us? Because we're so curious about you. Yes, yes. Also the Oklahoma people. But, yes, uh, yeah. also the Oklahoma people. Wow. Word is spreading. I know, I know. Straw hats everywhere. So, so John, tell us about your dissertation. What's, is there any possibility that I would understand the topic or even the title? Definitely. I'd love to share um, a little bit. Um, the title of my dissertation is Multi-Resolution Analysis in Discrete Spaces. And this is a way of putting a fancy title on dissertation so people will call you a doctor. <laughs> really, all I'm doing is uh, working in networks and trying to find a structure that exists, exists in things like social networks, identifying community. One of one would think that maybe ideas of community detection that I am working on might be of interest to the Jewish community, yeah. trying to target uh, subgroups of interest. So how do you identify a community? Um, there's a lot of different ways, um, and it depends on the size of the network, probably which strategy you would take. Um, but what can I say? Some things are like sort of simple in English, you could understand through like uh, diff it's called like diffusion processes. So, like if you understand, like we're starting with you, uh, uh, Tali, as the first uh, person in the community, we could see who you're friends with, like see how information or mass, whatever word you want to use, like spreading out through the network from Tali, that would slowly give you a sense of who the people she's connected to are, like what comprises the um, like sort of group that has this high level of interconnectedness. So let's say you had approximately 350 units of people <laughs> and they yeah. all paid dues to this one organization. Yeah. Does that make them a community? Um, that seems like a question you should answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Tali, tell us what you were up to in Germany. Um, so I was doing research towards my dissertation. Um, I'm looking at the history of Hebrew and Yiddish books in the 16th to 18th centuries. Um, so I spent a lot of time looking at archival documents in German, which, fun fact, uses a different alphabet. So it's much harder to read than you would oh, think. Oh, yeah, a different oh. script. It's a different. Yeah. It's like reading Rashi script. If you never learned Rashi script, it's just different letters, and you have to learn how to read the letters. For years, I thought that my PhD in statistics <laughs> was more challenging than Tali's PhD in history because anyone can read a history book. 
what's the big deal? After we started doing research, I've discovered that Tally's work is much harder than mine, and I never want to do it. <laughs> I, I'm glad you've divided that just, uh, yeah. appropriately. Um, so can you tell us, I don't know, how, how was life in Germany? What did you really appreciate there? Did uh, you miss us? Yes. We definitely missed you. That's why we listened to every podcast episode. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there is a Jewish, we were in Frankfurt, so there is a Jewish community there. Um, it's it's interesting to see what's going on there. Um, I think going there, we were expect. Uh, I was you had been there earlier. I was expecting like very little Jewish support there. It turns out there's a daily minion in Frankfurt. We live very close by to it. Um, people are very reliable. They never missed a morning minion. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> we should bring them here. <laughs> there was a there was a dafiomi of one there, but the minion <laughs> consisted of ten ten men. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so there's a, a lot of Russian Jews in Germany in general, mm. um, slightly less so in Frankfurt because it's more of a commercial center, but there's still a lot of Russian Jews who made up part of the community. Um, and just the structure is very different because there isn't this um, same sense of like volunteering to help the community. Um, the way it works is that everyone identifies the religious community that they want to be a part of, and the government will then withhold a certain percentage of your income tax and give that to the community. The Gemeinde. The yeah. Gemeinde. So the you're not volunteer, voluntarily paying dues. You're like having money taken out of your taxes. And then the the sense is, I've paid my taxes. Now you owe me services. Wow. So people don't volunteer to lean or to lead davening. They, ha- they hire a full-time chazan. They have two full-time rabbis. They hire a full-time mikvaliti. Anything that happens, you get paid for because they don't have the sense of, same sense of like volunteering for the community. And there aren't necessarily as many people who are qualified to do those things anyway. Mm. So, so where, where are you living now and what, what's next for you guys? Um, so we are currently living with my parents in New Jersey while we're looking for an apartment. <laughs> Thank you, David and Shira. <laughs> um, but John will be working at Etsy as a data scientist. Um, and I will still be working on my dissertation, which I can do from anywhere. Do your parents have plants? Um, they actually have been babysitting a couple of our plants for us <laughs> while we were in Germany, which I am hoping to take back once we have our own place. <laughs> so where are you looking for an apartment? Is that... How's your search going? What, what, are you, what are you looking for? Here? It's really hard to find a substitute for Lakeview in the New York area. We'll, we'll say that. We have been looking really hard. So I think we're probably going to end up in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, Etsy is in Brooklyn, and it seems like there's a, a cool community there. We look forward to hearing about that and hope we wish you a lot of luck on that. And, and just want to say that it's very, um, I think, important to, to those of us here that, that our alumni uh, feel connected to the show. I think that's mm-hmm. really uh, important to the like we're trying to create something different here, we're trying to do something special here, and that people who pass through our shul and move on to wonderful other communities, we hopefully like take a little bit of the spirit of Achishel with them and continue to feel connected to the shul and come back and visit and keep us informed of you know news in your lives. And so thank you for doing that and to anyone else listening in our <laughs> alumni community, like you're really important to us. We think about you and we hope you just continue to feel connected to the shul. And come back anytime. Yeah, we're really happy to be back. Yeah, Lakeview was really special for us. We really enjoyed our time here and we're very happy to be back at least for a little bit thank you so much for listening to this episode of the straw hat we really hope you enjoyed as always thank you so much to our producer Haley leventhal if you loved this episode and you want to tell us about it by voice note or in person or by email or by phone we would love to hear from you if you did not enjoy this episode and you want to tell us about that you should definitely um, dig a hole under your bedroom and bury it 
there and then rebuild your bedroom um, on top of it. That seems like a really appropriate place for a lot of your complaints about the podcast. Have a wonderful day and week. <laughs>